This episode of Best Girl Grip is sponsored by Share Her Journey, the Toronto International Film Festival's initiative to increase participation, skills and opportunities for women behind and in front of the camera. You can also join the movement at shareherjourney.org. Hello and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. Another week, another episode. Here in London, it's pretty dark and pretty cold, so I hope I can bring some light and some good conversation to your life for the next 40 minutes. Uh, This week, I interview Robin Citizen, who, besides having a very cool name, is a film curator, scholar, educator, and a Toronto-based Texan. Her eclectic film background includes working as a publicist assistant in the repertory office of New York City's Film Forum and guest lecturing on zombie cinema and the geopolitics of East Asian anthology horror films. In 2018, Citizen joined the Toronto International Film Festival as a programming associate, where she programs for the Shortcuts section, and later that year she was named as a programmer for the Human Rights Film Festival. We talk about the power of short film and getting them seen by audiences, getting a PhD, her experience of being a black woman in the academic sphere, and the importance of the deep take. Robin was a joy to interview and I'm excited for you to hear it. This is episode 35 of Best Girl Grip. So I went to University of Texas at Austin, and I really thought I was going to go into politics. So I majored in government, and I did that for a while, starting to get an inkling that probably didn't want to do politics. Uh-huh. I took a film class um, just as an elective and really loved it, and the TA actually took me aside and was like, I know that you are doing government, um, but you're really good at this, and mm. so maybe you should consider it. Yeah. And so I kind of had that in the back of my head. That's something that's always like really, I've been quite jealous of the American academic system is that you can major in something, but then you can like choose, as you say, electives that sort of complement it or like yeah. that take you out of what you're actually doing. So you can almost experiment a bit more. With, you really yeah. can. Yeah. And um, uh, you don't have to be stuck in like one discipline all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, after that, I, I went to New York and I worked for a nonprofit, still thinking I'd be doing politics somehow. My last name is Citizen, so (laughs) (laughs) feels like a birthright. (laughs) And I took the GRE instead of the LSAT, and I'm like, I'm gonna try to do film instead. Mm. And I had actually been doing lectures on like zombie cinema and horror cinema just independently Mm. in between that time period. And I got into NYU MA program for cinema studies. Okay, so that's like the theory kind of aspect of it. Yes. And um, I got a merit scholarship, which was how I was able to do the MA. Right. And then from there, it was just a matter of figuring out what exactly I wanted to focus on mm. um, when I got into the PhD program. Right. And yeah. what did you focus on? I ended up focusing on like race, ethnicity, and nation, but then also genre. So my doctoral research was about kind of cinematic encounters between blackness and Japanese-ness in mostly Japanese cinema, like in the post-war period. But 1948 through 1993 was kind of the time period I looked Mm -hmm. at. And I I was really just looking at how black culture, black 
persons, the black idiom functioned in cinemas without a black population. So there's not like a resident black population right. in Japan. But in the post-war period, you do find a lot of, not a lot, but quite a few black characters in films in like Germany and Italy and Japan. So part of my argument was talking about why Axis powers cinema mm -hmm. post-war had to deal with blackness and how it was part of their like imagery building after the war. But I felt, I felt the Japanese context was was most salient for my argument. Mm. And how long was the PhD? How long did it take you? Well, um, <laughs> it took me about seven years. I was married and I started a family um, while I was working on my dissertation. I don't necessarily recommend that <laughs> yeah, to a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot. I defended my dissertation five months pregnant with my second child. Um, so that's why it took me seven or eight years. Yeah. And with a PhD, what's the kind of, the end goal is obviously to get the, the qualification, but mm -hmm. then is there a life after that? Like, are you kind of giving presentations at conferences? Like, kind of, yeah, talk me through that sort of process. Yeah, well, after I finish my coursework, then it's like you um, become a TA and you teach at the mm. university. And at the time, you could actually get sessional teaching positions at other universities. In the interim, a lot of universities are saying you you have to have a PhD, like your completed PhD to even teach as a sessional there. So I feel like that's not as likely of an option for people anymore. Mm. But yeah, I was doing conferences. I was, you know, working on my dissertation, mostly writing a little bit and thinking about doing a tenure track or applying for a tenure track job. But uh, kept finding a reason not to because if you have a PhD really you're going to be in the professoriate there's not a lot of reason to right. get a PhD in film studies okay. if you don't want to be a professor and what do you think it was about that career path that kind of you were there was a reluctance to kind of yeah go for the tenure position the job market in lots of humanities has been fairly rough for mm. a while now and because I did have a family I was less um, willing to kind of apply for a job like in middle America and then like pick up and move everything and an academic's life is often kind of a nomadic life when you're trying to find the position that suits you best but also during getting my PhD I just started to think well what is it I want about this career is it the research and the learning I'm like a lifelong student I love researching mm -hmm. I love thinking about things and and teaching and I loved mentoring aspect of it but the kind of rush rush to publish and some of the other things um, I didn't really want to do on anybody else's schedule. And I'm wondering, I've never spoken to an academic for this podcast, and I'm really interested in the interplay between the critique that's required and, as you say, the research and how it informs the, the filmmaking landscape and kind of what you see its role to be or its importance in that. The importance of critique or research? Well, well both like the, the, the function of academia when, oh. yeah, in, in, in filmmaking and obviously for the next generation of people yeah. that are studying it and are inspired by it, kind of what do you see as a significance to be? It's actually a really good question because there's so many cinephile blogs out there yeah. and like for people that haven't, that aren't academics, that have just uh, taught themselves cinema and they, you know, can write their own blog post or online articles about it. And so definitely worth figuring out where film academics uh, fit in there. And I think it's kind of like a depth and breadth thing, you know, so I was able to do a really, really extended deep dive into a very particular subject. Mm -hmm. And I think there's still benefit in having these more deliberative, deep takes on uh, very specific things. And I think 
Especially in an era of hot takes. <laughs> right, yeah. And I love a good hot take. <laughs> I don't, uh, I definitely don't want to like dismiss hot takes, but sometimes when you watch a film repeatedly and you do uh, more research, you do come away with a quite different interpretation than you had in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And particularly dealing with ethnicity and race, I mean, um, that's a really long archive of images and, and uh, social politics that. Um, deserve a deep, a deep thought. So I think academia has that to offer, giving people a space, particularly people that are traditionally marginalized in academic spaces, because that's why I got into academia, to mm. help other uh, people of color, and particularly black women, get into academia if I could. But I think, you know, giving those people a chance to, us a chance to um, do deep dives into our own film histories Mm. and our own film representation and put our voices out there about what we think it means is really important. Well, that's exactly it, isn't it? The perspectives and the people that are so often doing the teaching are the people whose history it is. Yes. (laughs) And I've been on the other side of that as well. Yeah. Because I taught Korean cinema for about five years at University of British Columbia. Wow, okay. And I'm not Korean. (laughs) (laughs) But in a lot of universities uh, that I saw, the Asian film studies were either taught by people from that national context or uh, white academics. Mm. And so being like a black academic doing Asian film was a really interesting experience. But one that I had to decolonize from a different angle. I, I never, the goal was always to kind of share films and then, you know, come to a conclusion about what it meant together. But it was never to, because I had so many Korean and, and students from the region. I, w- I didn't try to say, let me tell you about your culture, like, as I interpret through this film. Yeah. I mean, that's a pedagogy I don't believe in. Have you ever found academia quite a difficult or prejudiced space to be in? Have you felt like you've had to fight against certain stereotypes? Um, yes, I've definitely, when I was in grad school, I had a um, professor approach me to do a Spike Lee conference. And I love Spike Lee, uh, but I've never worked on Spike Lee's cinema. Mm. And so, uh, and I was the only black person in the program at the time, or I think like even two years before, two years after. And so it was clear that even though you get siloed into certain areas of study based on your identity. Mm. And I mean, to be honest, many people of color and women, when you go into academia, it is to study your identity and how your identity has been represented. But you don't want to be kind of just uh, automatically put in that box. And people assume that all you study is just your one area yeah. of identity. How did you come to specialize in Korean and Japanese cinema through the lens yeah, of blackness as well? Honestly, it's from an, uh, an activist perspective. So as an undergrad, I was a campus activist. And I worked a lot around um, affirmative action, which they kept trying to end at University of Texas. <laughs> and there was like a court case in the Supreme Court. That, and we were trying to work with a uh, black law society at the school to become like third party interveners. I was part of a group called AROC, Anti-Racist Organizing Committee. And the people that were really active in the organization were Asian women. So um, there were black graduate students, there were certainly uh, white undergrads and grad students as well, but the, the people at the core of like the day-to-day activities were, you know, a woman from Taiwan, a woman from Sri Lanka, a woman from the Philippines, and so, um, and then gentlemen from like Pakistan. So it was people that I think were not taught in the States that had an active role in the civil rights movement, and of course they did, but that story's been written out. So when I met so many people from the region that were actively fighting for like a broad 
civil rights and like uh, an acknowledgement of marginalization in, in the university, I was thinking, oh, what other what other solidarity movements have there been between like black and Asian communities? And then I just kind of fell down that rabbit hole. Yeah. And are you still writing papers and, and doing research? And has your have you tailored your specialism or your interest areas at all? I am slowly moving away from Asian film, um, partially because when I, when I did my dissertation, I had um, some competency in Japanese. A, a lot of my sources were not in Japanese, but mm. I did have a couple, so I had to learn a bit of Japanese. Okay, wow. And in the interim, like after not using it for 10 years, <laughs> surprise, I lost, <laughs> I lost most of it. So I, I still do race, and I actually have a chapter coming out on Get Out mm. um, in an edited volume, and I compare it to uh, John Frankenheimer's Seconds. <laughs> And then I also have a chapter about East Asian cult cinema discussing uh, like kind of representations of, of blacks and then also black fandom of East Asian cult cinema. Wow, that's really cool. And are they like published in the kind of academic sphere? Like, um, like yeah, volumes? Yeah, they're like academic edited mm-hmm. volumes and they're, they're forthcoming. But I definitely want to do more. Now my focus is how to kind of transfer that type of writing to a more accessible film writing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working on doing that now. But like I, I miss because I went to university and did film and I kind of I miss having, yeah, as you say, those deep takes and those really yeah. kind of like don't really get it in the sort of popular culture film writing yeah and there's some writers who could do it very quickly i mean i i was reading a piece by angelica jade Mm. um and i don't want to say the outlet because i don't remember but it was about the film the nightingale and i feel like she stated she had just seen the film and and then what she wrote was this incredibly nuanced take of like sexual violence in film and like it was research she referenced early cinema and the turnaround time is so short mm. and and some people just can crank that stuff out and have yeah. it still be like of such a high quality and such a depth but I, I don't know the rest of us need a couple drafts and yeah, I suppose that's the thing when you're making a living out of it and you have to keep like on yeah. your own deadline like you're not afforded the time and space to do that exactly keep thinking and you're a program here at TIFF as well and, and I'm wondering how how you got into that from the academic space well I decided to move to Toronto because I wasn't super happy in Vancouver. I was very happy at UBC, who and that community was very good to me as a sessional lecturer. Sometimes it's not a great working situation, but they were actually very supportive. But Vancouver as a city, <laughs> it was not my favorite place. Uh-huh. And so um, my family decided to move to Toronto, and I was th- looking for things to do that were still in film but outside of academia. Um, and somebody's like, oh, you should apply for TIFF. Um, but, you know, they warned me also that don't get your hopes up. <laughs> Nobody gets in the first time. But I interviewed and I um, was hired to work for as a programming associate for Jane Schodel, who has since retired. But mm. she did um, Australia, New Zealand, Israel and U.S. indie cinema. Wow. And then the next year I um, was asked to do shortcuts as a international programmer yeah and did has your career thus far had it prepared you for that role like or did it feel like quite a you know a completely different thing it was a pretty steep learning curve I mean having an extensive background in film helps for sure and Mm. I have done internships and brief stints at film companies I worked at film forum in the repertory office um, for six months kind of in the interim between MA and PhD programs and that was an amazing learning experience. Um, we brought guests down. I brought 
We brought Tatsuya Nakadai down, who's a Japanese actor, probably only second to Toshiro Mifune mm-hmm. in terms of like legendary status. Um, and that was really important at that point in my research to, to have that experience. And I've worked at um, production companies, which I encourage any film theory person to do because really when you when you look at how films are made and how films are distributed, a lot of film theory becomes untenable or less applicable right. to, to many situations because you you know sometimes distributors and producers have uh, an enormous say in what the end content of a film ends up so it's not just the writer just the director um, so it added a lot of nuance that prepared me for this having both sides of the experience I think was crucial mm, and I'm also interested in the, the fact that you you must have felt quite knowledgeable about film, having kind of studied it for such a period of time. Mm-hmm. Like some programmers and um, you know other film professionals that I speak to say that uh, you know they didn't study it and therefore mm-hmm. they feel like they have a bit of imposter syndrome. So did you feel like you had that sort of that lexicon and that familiarity to be able to sort of say, well, you know, I, yeah, I, I know about this kind of type of cinema and where it might fit into this program. Yeah, I felt like um, it, I had a really solid background, but that definitely did not preclude <laughs> imposter syndrome. I mean. <laughs> Um, as a woman, I mean, TIFF is actually really singular in that and having like uh, women representation in programming teams. But before I worked here, when I looked at programmers and even when I looked at critics, you know, I felt like women weren't represented very much. Uh, People of color weren't very represented, um, in particular, black American critics. There was like a couple Mm -hmm. that are very well known, but it's in the field of critics we're still so few yeah and if you think about how big a cinema is in a press screening and it's like one or two it's just not it's it's not cut (laughs) and they're not like necessarily in the big outlets either and so and frankly when I lived in New York um and I was working kind of in the repertory scene and it wasn't at the office I worked at but I did see the interactions between critics and Mm -hmm. how women trying to break into programming and criticism were treated by other more established male critics. And I mean, that caused me to rule programming out at the time. Mm, Um, And so it it seemed very tough and um, for very little like reward kind Mm. of thing. And so I decided to go back into academia. But um, yeah, I mean, I think things have changed. I think people have made there still needs to be changes, but there's definitely a renewed commitment to diversify the people that um, evaluate and interpret film. Um, and talk me through the kind of the logistics of the role, kind of is, is it a year round kind of effort? Uh, how are films coming to you and how are you making those selections? It is a contract position. It's a year round effort in that when you're not actually on the job, you're going to other film festivals or you're, you know, you're using your contacts to figure out what people are seeing and what people are excited about. Um, but you know, you start work in, March or April, and then you end at the end of September, and then you go on to do your other things. Um, and our busiest period was like June and July, when the bulk of like our heavy watching was done. Right. And we have pre-screeners to um, do the blind submissions, and our programming associate Anita um, helps. And I should say my co-programmer is Jason Anderson. And um, every film gets watched at least once, often twice, mm-hmm. um, because. You don't want to be flippant about something yeah. that somebody's baby, essentially, they've yeah. been working on for months or months or years. 
Um, and then, you know, when we get a short list, uh, you know, we rewatch re and discuss and think about any themes that are emerging. Think about, you know, do we have films from, like, a, that are a good mix of, like, voices and regions. Um, and then, yeah, you, you go about contacting the, film, the filmmaking teams. And do you have a criteria or is it about trusting your own instinct and taste about what a film makes you feel? Yeah, that's first and foremost, really. Like a couple minutes into a film, you watch the whole film, but honestly, two or three minutes in, usually you kind of know, are you taken with this or aren't you? Um, and we don't have themes here at TIFF. Like the themes emerge organically and there's always kind of trends um, or tendencies that come in every year. This year, there were a lot of American films that had a very similar aesthetic, very similar um, kind of lo-fi indie aesthetic mm. um, to the point where it was like 70% of the films. And so those trends that are in the community fil filter into the submissions that you get. Coming-of-age films are always overrepresented. <laughs> There's not as many comedies because I think people don't want to submit comedies to film festivals because they associate film festival fair with like something bleak serious. and serious <laughs> with a capital S. Um, but we do take very seriously this need to have different voices. Like we don't need to have, you know, 20 Holden Caulfield type stories from like um, an affluent young white male perspective. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's about the quality of the film. And with shorts programming, I'm interested in how you group them together and how you order them as well, because sometimes what you see before might, you know, put you in a, a different frame of mind for what you then see it. So, yeah, how, how does that go about happening? That That's very tricky, and there's kind of a dramaturgy to it. Um, and it's it's almost like making a mixtape, my co-programmer <laughs> says. And you, you want to end with you, there's a couple considerations does the film prior to that end with like an extended musical note because then you want to not necessarily put a film after it sometimes you want to like let that end the program you want to not have a jarring emotional conflict between like an incredibly sad film and then like a super jovial comedy um, you want to have a certain emotional flow you want to have a thematic thread um, it doesn't have to be about the same thing but like for example, this year we have a lot of films on grief and loss, um, and we try to group them together. But grief and loss, different tones, you know, or different genres exploring that. We also have a lot of films on um, young women and non-traditional female sexuality and sensuality, and that just appeared in our submissions, and mm -hmm. we kind of um, placed those films um, together, but also in programs that could accommodate the different voices. So we we go through the films and we order them in a way that we think will take the audience on a particular arc um, and not kind of jerk them around too much emotionally or uh, cognitively mm. and then end on uh, kind of a strong last shot or strong musical note. And then how are you drawing audiences in? Because often shorts are from emerging filmmakers, people that haven't established themselves. They often don't feature big talent. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, how are you positioning them to say, you know, this is worthwhile your time? Yeah, shortcuts programs can kind of be um, like outsiders in the rest of a film festival. And I think um, particularly because my co-programmer has been doing this for so long and has so many contacts and people are familiar with his curatorial voice, that helps. Um, and also... 
We do have emerging filmmakers. I mean, that's the bulk of it. Um, but this year in particular, we had many feature filmmakers who have come back to re-explore the medium with their shorts. Mm. So, um, I mean, we had a Yorgos Lanthimos short film, um, which I think really piqued interest in the entire program because uh, it's been selling really, really well. Like, we've had full houses. Um, and TIFF, the curation at TIFF has been so good for the past few years that I think people trust they can go to a shorts program and not have the experience of like only really liking one film in the program because I've definitely been to the <laughs> film festivals where you go see a shorts program and like you know four of them are just have no relation and you really only connect to one or two and um, the rest of the time you're kind of flailing mm. and so we try to have uh, enough of a connection between our films that people feel like they're getting a solid entire program and uh, the feedback's been good so far this year. Like people have been coming to us like that was a good pro. She's, they're like we really like the entire program. Like we felt like there was no duds, and that's what you want to. Yeah. That's what you want to hear, and I think that's why people come back because it becomes its own event, not just something you get a ticket to when you can't get tickets to the features. Mm. And and that idea of yeah returning to shorts. Like, what do you think the reason is? behind that and why filmmakers now maybe have more flexibility you know it's not just about that upwards yeah. um, journey from like shorts or TV mm -hmm. to, to feature filmmaking yeah what do you have a reason behind why that might be um well I, I'm a fan of the short form in all mediums so I, I prefer short stories I prefer and I think it's just its own thing that short films you're almost dumped into the action kind of like in the middle and you have to do a very quick characterization. It has to be immersive mm. characterization or immersive visual aesthetics. And you're also allowed to kind of explore ideas briefly in a short and not feel like you have to you know, have some full narrative closure. Um, you can kind of end in a way that asks the audience to um, fill in some blanks or, or it creates, there's possibilities still at the end of a short film. And so I think Actors that have been, not actors, directors that have been working in features where there's um, kind of this necessity to have a narrative arc or a character arc, you don't have to fit those pieces together in the same way in a short film. And, and the viewer doesn't feel cheated because they're like, you're only getting a snippet, you're only getting a snapshot. Um, you don't have to fully flesh out an entire character's being, but just like this one aspect of the character that's important to this one moment in their, in their life story. And what do you think makes a good programmer? Ooh. Um, uh, flexibility, crisis management skills, <laughs> um, a continual questioning of your own metrics of how you evaluate something to be good. Hmm. And I think this is the challenge that film festivals, but also film institutions are having with diversifying like everybody wants to diversify and get more voices but the fact is there's so many levels that need to be attended to to do that people have to feel that your organization's open to playing things like if they if they've gone to your film festival and they always see one type of story they're not even going to submit right yeah. you have to have pre-screeners that are versed in different types of stories different different countries i mean they're the first line of defense really like before mm -hmm. things get to the programmers you have to have programmers that um, are also like have a broad familiarity even if they have a specialty in one area and continually when I watch films and I'm not connecting with them I ask myself am I not connecting with it because 
I'm not familiar with this story. I'm not familiar with this person and like what they're going through and I can't identify because that in itself should not be the kind of deciding factor of whether this is a good film or not. I mean, it, it really is a continual questioning of why you're um, identifying or, or what your interpretation is. And for me, because I did go to grad school at NYU's like fairly canonical program, mm. um, I, I got brought up with the same rubric of evaluation as people that only play, you know, your films from Europe or something. I mean, most of our canon was like French cinema and um, art house cinema from a certain group of people, a certain type of artist. And so even though I'm a person of color and I want to widen that field, you watch a film and almost part of that's ingrained in you. So I have like maybe more motivation to go beyond it and say, why am I looking at this film this way? But um, uh, everybody gets kind of the same. This is what makes it good. This is what an art film looks like. And, and these are the people who tell those stories. And presumably that's another area where academia has kind of helped this career path because that's that's about the practice of evaluation and questioning yes. and critique. So actually, yeah, they yeah. seem like a really good marriage. <laughs> Constant, um, <laughs> almost irritating levels of critique. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and talk me through, because like, I imagine a lot of people think that once you've made the selections, mm -hmm. the programmer's job has ended, but it, it continues obviously throughout the festival. Yes. And what is your role um, like before and during the, the screenings? Um, well, after we contact the teams and tell them that they're in, there's a, an enormous amount of logistics that um, need to be communicated to them about not just the festival experience, but, you know, getting there. Um, their film files to us and you know formatting and and all of these other things and then when they're here we like to host them I think not all festivals do that mm -hmm. um, sometimes programmers aren't really in contact with the filmmakers like their job really is over um, but at TIFF it's like we're it's a Canadian festival <laughs> people are friendly and so we take our filmmakers out we actively try to facilitate their ability to network with people that are going to help further their career, mm. particularly with shorts, because they're just getting their foot in the door a lot of times. You want to like introduce them to people that can give them advice on how to sell their film or um, distribute their film or develop their next project or people that they might want to work with, just like other technical, um, like craftsmen and uh, other craftspeople um, and other artists that they can kind of put in their circle. Because the short film community I feel like a lot of people already do know each other and mm -hmm. you get a lot of collaboration. Um, but that needs to happen during the festival at like industry panels and workshops and dinners um, because you want them to keep on working. You want them to keep being able to do what they want and then go in the direction they want, whether that's feature films or staying in shorts. Like a lot of animators only make short films their entire career. So, mm. And what is it you particularly like about working at TIFF? Well, I like the commitment to um, inclusion and uh, that's been a big commitment that TIFF has made. Um, I very much like working with my co-programmer, <laughs> who's lovely and has onboarded me to this position that he's been doing for so long. Um, and there's a real collegial feeling amongst everybody. Um, you can talk to, your, to the other programmers and the colleagues and get um, opinions on your program. Uh, you're also in close contact with the pre-screeners, so they don't feel like they're in this bubble. And then like, once they do their job, they never see the finished kind of um, product. Um, and I like 
the city of Toronto. <laughs> yeah, it's a very cool place. I'm yeah. falling in love with it. And um, I do like the I do like the vibe of the festival. Like it's a friendly kind of um, engaged festival. Um, and have you had a proudest programming moment? Like something that you've yeah just been really happy and excited to screen. Um. Yes, last year I was really happy to be a part of um, an Ethiopian-Israeli film called Fig Tree, mm. um, and I was helping Jane bring that over. And I, I was a very big, big advocate for like for that movie. And the woman who directed it, it was like the first film shot in Ethiopia by a woman filmmaker. She ended up winning an award at the festival for it. Um, and seeing how people reacted like reacted to her after the screening and people were just like mobbed her mm. um, and telling a story that had to do with diaspora and marginalization and you know leaving your own home and have her feel so welcomed in another context was was a really beautiful experience um, and I've had that feeling all during this festival so far um, but particularly the Toronto filmmakers um, we're super happy to support them. We have like Karen Chapman and Carol Nguyen, who's incredibly young mm. and incredibly accomplished, um, and other people that are based here. Their whole families and teams can come out and experience the festival and support uh, the people they, they know that are doing really great work. And when you're um, selecting films from low production um, countries or, um, yeah, mm. like Ethiopia, like where are, you, where are you hearing about those filmmakers and those films? Well, I mean, that's where the film uh, programmers with a long-time network really come into play. Mm -hmm. Jane, you know, is so well-respected all over um, Israel, and so um, her networks told her about that film. But honestly, you find talent. Even if you see somebody's film and you can't program it this year, it's not quite there, you kind of keep it in the back of your mind, and then you kind of just follow that person. Mm -hmm. You know, the next time they have a project, you're kind of looking at it, or you're kind of, they're, they're giving you updates, and... That happens in the countries where there's not a huge national cinema infrastructure, but um, somebody will know them and they'll contact you. And your job as a programmer is to like follow what they're doing. If you feel like they're raw talent, to really make sure they don't fall through the cracks mm. and um, make sure that you're kind of keeping an eye on the stuff that they're working on. Because if they're right there, you want to be the person to give them a platform. Um, your your role in academia and your role in programming seem to require something that you know um, deep thinking and, and space to be able to do that. And I'm wondering how how you balance that with raising a family and where you find the time to like you know to to, to devote yourself to that. How do I balance yeah. that? <laughs> Probably in like the two hours between after my kids go to sleep and after I'm sleeping. <laughs> um, that's that's really when I do it. Like I'm a mm. night person, um, but during the day I want to be present for my family and at my job. And um, best case scenario is when I have time during my work day to, to do research, like that's required for um, a programming thing or like research on a project. Um, but yeah, it happens in the off hours and it, and it happens in the kind of breaks that I get between um, contracts to kind of uh, develop professionally and then also uh, do the research that I, I really love and try to fit that I haven't found a perfect formula of how to fit that into mm. my into my work life it's kind of catch as catch can right now where do you see your career going is there anything that you'd like particularly like the opportunity to do um I don't make long-term plans <laughs> <laughs> but uh, of course I would like to keep working um with shortcuts and programming and explore some more of my programming options including um, like repertory, more repertory um, 
programs as well. Um, and there's particular areas that I would like to explore. For me, um, I would really like to get a program together about films, films about racism that aren't about white people of color racism. So it's about racism within communities of color, mm. um, reactions, kind of people of color to people of color racism stories and how we perceive it and how we work together, alliances, and then also disjunctures. Um, I think too often uh, white characters are centered in films about uh, racism, but there's lots of stories like Mississippi Masala and other films, uh, some of the Japanese films I did research on that are really about how we look at other members of our community and, and either include them or decide to other them. Mm. Have you read, um, is it Margot Jefferson's Negroland? That's like a really interesting no. um, memoir. She was raised in a middle-class black family mm-hmm. um, and she talks a lot about the nuances between like different classes and sort of the, yeah, the the stereotypes that she felt she got for kind of, you know, having having that privilege, you know, yeah. in and of itself. Oh, yeah. for sure, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, besides colorism, which I think everybody is, is like pretty well discussed, um, there's, you know, there's like old money families in the black community mm-hmm. down south and you know, people that had like debutante balls. And, and there's also, you know, uh, kind of you can find rifts between different diasporas, like uh, African diasporas versus um, black Americans versus people that come from the Caribbean. I mean, there's so much in common and so much overlap, but there are subtle, uh, you know, there's always some subtle differences and, and areas of conflict mm-hmm. because... The immigrant experience does not completely map onto um, like being a part of a racially marginalized community that came here in a very different way. So, and it feels like Schwartz might actually be particularly well positioned to speak to those different kind of nuances and those different perspectives. Yeah, and yeah, yeah and that you can program something where yeah you you get a lot of perspectives at once. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it gives you a very broad view of of how different communities relate to each other um, outside of how they're seen by kind of a dominant gays or a dominant society. Um, do you feel like there's a misconception around, um, or what do you think the biggest misconception is around working in the film industry or, or programming in general? I think there's a misconception of like it being super glamorous all the time. I mean, uh, when you tell people what, when I tell people what I do, sometimes they're like, oh man. And I think people are imagining like parties mm. with like me and Tom Hanks and like Idris Elba. And sometimes you see them, but it's like you're, you're working. And I'm a huge a fan too like I'm a cinephile but I'm uh, I have a fangirl side to me but <laughs> while I'm doing my programming I can't it would not be professional to indulge in the fangirling so um, <laughs> yeah. I do that on my own free time but yeah I mean it's glamorous but it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of logistics and um, you're basically facilitating relationships and that's not talked about a lot like the, the curation aspect I feel mm-hmm. like is is very emphasized but the you're connecting people, you're facilitating relationships is almost more important. Mm. Um, and it's, it's probably going to be very hard to choose, but is there a woman filmmaker here at TIFF who's got a short film that you um, particularly want to spotlight? Um, there are a couple. So Karen Chapman's Measure, because she's a Toronto filmmaker, um, and it's just a very elegant nine-minute look at a family and particularly a little boy who are going through he's having to make decisions that no child should have to make but you you follow him around Toronto and 
um, it seems like he's kind of aimlessly wandering in order to not have to go home to face his mom about misbehaving in school. And you slowly realize that there's more to it. It's really about childhood and responsibility. Um, and the other female filmmaker is a woman named Irene Moray, and she's from Spain. And she has a film called Watermelon Juice. And we get so many films about relationships that are about dysfunctional relationships and kind of toxic relationships where the partnership is strained. And she has this film about a woman who's really trying to heal old wounds and old traumas by going on holiday with her partner and her friends and kind of surrendering to intimacy as a way of healing and different types of intimacy, like mm -hmm. friendship, sexuality, um, romance. And it's just so lovely and mature and lush and just beautiful and cathartic and um, really one of the most mature looks that we've ever seen on sexuality and relationships. And it, it just kind of blew me away when I first mm -hmm. saw it. Um, and beyond the festival, because obviously shorts sometimes don't get distribution, how how can people see them after they've had their festival run? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an area that's really still develop, developing. Mm. We've had contact by a surprising number of companies that are really looking into short films, and they'll buy the short films, but there's, there's still kind of this question of how to distribute them. And so you have forums like Best Short of the Week or something, um, or Vimeo. Mm. Um, and Netflix is, has has more and more shorts. Yeah. If it's a genre short, you can sometimes find it on Shutter. I've seen shorts on iTunes as well. Mm -hmm. And so they're out there, but there, I feel like there's still this need of having kind of a place to aggregate short films that people that are interested in them can see them. And I feel like there needs to be more discussion about theatrical pairings of short films. So I used to live in New York for a long time and you could go to like anthology film archives mm -hmm. or different places and they'd have like short film programs. And uh, it's like, cause it's a very particular type of film scene, but even those were more experimental shorts. And I almost want to go back to the time where you can expect to find a short yeah. film in front of a feature film. But you there's... get it with Pixar, right? Like everyone knows exactly. that, that you, just, you just go to the cinema and expect to see it. So if you can just like bring back that tradition, people wouldn't object. They yeah. just know to expect it. Let's make it part of the film culture yeah. again. Yeah. They have like a little, a little bite-sized film and then with mm. your feature film. And that would, it'd be so much more accessible. You don't want short films to be something that only film festival goers have access to or only like, you know, hardcore cinephiles because, I mean, everybody gets... Everybody should have the opportunity to develop, to um, discover new talent. Mm. So, is that like an important part of your work then, in almost like rebranding what the short film is and can be? Yes. In, you know, because yeah, it has connotations as often, you know, being a filmmaker's calling card or kind of being yeah. something that's not worthy of an audience, but obviously it is, and there's yeah. a lot of power in the short form. Yeah, um, or like a proof of concept. A lot yeah. of people just feel like this is your demo reel for your film. Um, no, definitely. And that's. Uh, work that my co-programmer Jason's been doing for a while and we've been working with um, you know kind of the communications team of the festival to direct people to oh you're going to see these features but there's also um, a short in this program that also speaks to those themes or also speaks to those aesthetics and some of the most interesting conversations I've had are people that are like well my favorite film is this like what short film kind of resonates with that and so uh, yeah, you can lead. You can tell people there's something here for you as well. Um, that it's not a lesser art form because it's shorter. It's its own distinct 
thing with its own distinct charms. Robin, thank you so much. This thank has you. been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. If this is your first time, go back and check out the archives on iTunes, Spotify and Acast. If you're a regular, thank you for listening and I'll be back next week with a final interview from TIFF. Have a good week. Bye.